0: (laughs) Um, So, and my box is this red box, and yes, I am angry. I live in a red red angry box.
1: PowerPoints, power lunches, conference calls, reply to all, endless meetings, constant check-ins, and so much wasted time. Are you sick of the BS? So are we. It's time to take our time back, rework the way we work, and make every call a call to action. This is a podcast for people who want to stop talking and really start connecting. This is After 12. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to After 12, 12 for 12's original podcast series that explores cool companies, brands, messages, and makers, and what compels us to take notice and become fans. We've got a very smart and funny show for you today. Our guest today is an associate professor of communication and political science at the University of Delaware, where she studies the content, audience, and effects of political humor. Her research on the psychology and influence of political entertainment has been widely published, including articles in the Columbia Journalism Review, Media Psychology, Political Communication, International Journal of Press Politics, Journal of Broadcasting and Electronic Media, and Mass Media and Society. She is a distinguished fellow of the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg Public Policy Center and recently released her book, Irony and Outrage, which examines satire and outrage in psychological profiles of liberals and conservatives. She is also a very funny improviser and co-owner of Comedy Sports Delaware. Internet, please put your hands together and welcome Dr. Danigale Young to After 12.
0: Adam, thank you.
1: Your bio is like uh, it's like the whole Beatles catalog of of songs. That's like
0: it was kind of embarrassing. You recognize that that's all just just out there, just to make sure that I get promoted to full professor this (laughs) year, right? Exactly.
1: That's that's all that is. Part of publishing (laughs) is publishing your own bio.
0: That's that's exactly (laughs) right. I got invited to write my own Wikipedia page recently, and I'm like, I think that might be a bridge too far for me, even (laughs) me. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, anyone can change it, too, so.
0: Right. Yeah, that'd be fun to see what happens. Get my students in there, see what happens.
1: You get a bad grade, you can change my page. Um, Right. So, Dana, we are living in truly intense times. I mean, we've got COVID-19 and Trump's hegemonic state, racial tension. I thought you said this
0: was going to be funny. Didn't you just say (laughs) this this is going to be funny?
1: This is the setup for the punchline. Oh, Oh, I can't wait. Uh, Economic depression, rising unemployment, <laughs> upcoming presidential election, alcohol and drug use are hitting record highs. So, and literally. The
0: post office. The post office. <laughs> yes, and the USPS
1: the is is getting deep-sixed, slowly <laughs> but surely. These are high octane times, Dana, and presumably yeah. presumably a great time to study media and political satire what are some yeah. of the biggest insights trends thoughts uh, hopeless cryings resonating with you these days
0: I could spend this time just weeping because that's where my heart is but you know what just for the benefit of all of us um, I'll be I'll be more positive um well first though just to be to to be honest about it for a second I think I see the status of our media landscape as part of what is happening politically. So uh, I I try not to be too much of a media determinist and say that everything that's happening politically and culturally and socially is a result of media, but it's very hard to, to imagine that they're just completely unrelated.
1: Right. And
0: we have a, a media environment that benefits from our constant arousal, not the good kind of arousal. I'm talking the psychological kind of arousal, which just means huge attention, huge emotional investment. Uh, In other words, not the sexual kind, right? We're talking about just like (laughs) excitement. Any emotion that's heightened is arousal.
1: And to reiterate, we're not talking about the dirty, dirty.
0: We're not, no. Although I do, I have heard that that is on Twitter and I've realized I do Twitter incorrectly because that's not my Twitter my Twitter has none of that. So clearly I'm doing it wrong. But but when you have a media environment that is has a vested interest in creating emotional responses, then eventually that's going to bleed into political life where those emotional responses are going to be used to try to make political cases for and against various things. And when it comes to our social media landscape, where you're talking about algorithms and news feeds that are curated based on our visceral responses, how could it incentivize anything but our emotions?
1: The more polemic, the more audience you have and the more money you make. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's not to say that there aren't reasons to be outraged, right? There are, but I think that part of the commodification of that outrage is it's self-responsible for the directions that we have gone as a culture in terms of policy and politics and these cultural
1: wars. OK, well, then in the last two decades, the way that we've constructed our identities ha- has changed. Social media has created an echo chamber for our values, our ideas, beliefs, etc., and also given rise to, you know, presumably this digital anonymity that that we've been hiding behind normalizing and heightening trolling and the, you know, incivility and, you know, the socio political divide, not to mention outside interference from foreign governments and sovereign states. Uh, I guess my question is, is the political satire, you know, from the the folks I love like Colbert and Trevor Noah and Seth Meyers, is it making things worse or better?
0: I, this is such a tricky question. Um, There are some studies that actually suggest that it does contribute to political polarization, right, which shouldn't be surprising, right? Political satire generally comes from the left, generally makes liberal arguments critical of conservative values and institutions and individuals. So that shouldn't be that surprising. However, what satire does as an art form is different from what the conservative media does, because satire invites the audience to come to a conclusion. And satire is actually not hugely good at direct persuasion. It's not really great at getting us to change our views about things. It's really good at inviting us to think about things a new way. It's good at bringing things to the top of our mind that maybe we haven't thought about before, whereas the what I call the sort of conservative aesthetic, which is this outrage genre like political talk radio and these political opinion shows like uh, Hannity or um, Laura Ingram or Tucker Carlson, those shows actually leave nothing to the imagination. They say exactly what they're saying. They tell you exactly who to hate. And exactly what to do about it. And they're actually not great at um, elucidating things. They're not good at yeah. unpacking or explicating things. They're just good at putting things in a certain light and like orienting you to a target.
1: Right. They don't want to show or highlight hypocrisy or or add questions to the statements. It's all soundbite. It's all speaking and yes. and, and very quick punches. In fact, when guests that are liberal come onto those shows They get they get shut down pretty regularly, you know, and interrupted pretty regularly.
0: Right. Um, One of the things that's fascinating is when you watch a liberal on the show engaging in sort of a, a liberal rhetorical form, which is usually sort of questioning, asking questions and asking questions in a way that should illuminate hypocrisy on the part of the host it just, it ends up, it's like a short circuit, right? Because the conservative host usually will be like, yo, you're, you're, you don't ask the questions. I ask the questions and I'm now deciding you're done.
1: And the other guests gang up with the host on the liberal. Yeah. It's, it is kind of fun. So why is there so, you know, such little, um, political satire coming from conservative parties?
0: So this question has been talked about forever. I mean, I've been studying this for 20 years, and it's the question that kind of like ran around after me, and finally I was like, I have to figure this out. You know, why is it that all these satirists are liberal? And it, it, I argue that it comes down in part to the underlying psychological profiles of liberals and conservatives. And this tends to rub people the wrong way because people do not like to be put in boxes, especially liberals do not like to be put in boxes but tough pajamas. Here it is. I've been
1: hiding it, in a box for the last five months. So that I'm explains
0: everything. It. All of Here the it things. Is. Here it is. Here's the box. <laughs> um, so, and my box is this red box. And yes, I am angry. I live in a red, a red, angry box. Um, so the, the, when you look at political psychological literature, You know, for decades and decades, there's been an interest in what they call the authoritarian personality, which was this notion that, yeah, people who are socially and culturally conservative aren't just conservative in their politics. They tend to orient to the world differently. They like things in black and white. They like order and predictability and familiarity. Now, some of that research was kind of debunked for being too, like, morally self-righteous, but so social psychologists have kind of moved away from the idea of the authoritarian personality. And instead they're looking at it in terms of this trait called tolerance for ambiguity, right? Mm. So the liberals tend to be very tolerant of ambiguity and uncertainty in their lives, in their routines, in the foods they eat and in the art that they consume, right? So liberals tend to be more appreciative of, of abstract art and performance art and stories that don't necessarily end, right? Conservatives, want closure and they like realistic art and stories that come to a conclusion they like predictable popular or country music you know the sort of syncopated jazz is like not their thing and these are stereotypes but they're also actual correlations that stem from how we as animals orient to threats in our environment that's what Mm -hmm. it comes down to that conservatives are more cognizant of threats And as a result, they want certainty, they want order, they want familiarity, because that minimizes the risk of threat. Whereas liberals are kind of like, I I mean, I don't know what's lurking and I don't care. So let's play and experiment and, you know, do jazz.
1: And watch the double feature Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead and waiting for Godot. Yes. I've, yes. I gotcha. Yeah. Um I mean, but you would think that, you know, pointing out our flaws, you know, as humans, because we are are deeply flawed, that that would help. I mean, even before, you know, Trump's China virus made landfall, the U.S. was in a steady descent into this kind of division bifurcated, you know, by like the left and the right, the, the black and the white, you know, everything had to have this kind of pugilistic side um, but, you know, more than ever, it seems like we need to see, to stop and, and laugh at ourselves because, you know, I, I, love how you, you frame it as, you know, animals because we are just another species on this planet. And somehow because of our, our ability to cognate, to reason, we've, we've ascended into the hierarchy saying, you know, we're the most important species on the planet right. and we make the rules. Um, <laughs> but it's, right. I mean, it. it we only live, you know, 90 years if we're lucky. So the, th- the thought of, of having some sort of God dice over the, the game is, is kind of preposterous, especially with the amount of things that could happen to you. Um, I mean, you know, my wife's an oncologist, the rise of cancers, you know, sense industrialization, like just the way that we're just tweaking the natural order of things. It's a short life. Why does it have to it be is. so difficult?
0: And I I think that this is where, so when I started studying this stuff, I, I started from, through the lens of social psychology. So studying media effects on individuals, so doing experiments and survey research, you know, show someone something, then what happens, how does their attitude change from baseline, this kind of stuff. And the more I got into this, and then the more I started zooming out, I realized that you cannot ignore media economics and the Uh system, because the way that media messages look in the first place and the sort of pressures that are guiding the creation and dissemination of those messages itself comes from who is getting paid by whom for what. And And then, you know, what I always tell my students, once you realize that the product in the media ecosystem is actually not content at all, but it's our eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Then you're able to untangle everything and look at it in a new way. And until you get to that point, you assume that the media, all the images and all the messages you get through media are they're somehow a version of reality, but they're not they're not. They are simply tools to separate us into markets. And sometimes that's okay, right? Sometimes then you get the boots that you really love and they knew who you were and that you wanted those boots. And I'm like, thank you. But other times it's not good, right? Like I would say, micro targeting of political advertisements on Facebook to groups of individuals less than 500, sometimes less than 200, based on what music you listen to, I don't think that's good.
1: No, I agree. I mean you, you you know trying to do a super sample demographic of you know a, a, and and hone it down you're you're basically limiting your audience's um access to everything else um, it is it's really interesting I, you know the, the the whole idea too that you know with with men i mean this has been going on for centuries i mean the 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 provocative male gaze, you know, throw images of flesh and, and, and turn heads. It's the same thing with images of violence. Um, and you know, it's, it's all about the cycle of, of money. I mean, and, and consuming media, you know, the United States is the largest, consumer market on the planet with a pre-COVID GDP of 20 trillion and 325 million people. Um, and then household spending here is the largest right. in the world. I mean, we're a hyper-consumer focused culture yeah. economy. We celebrate successful people. We scrutinize the financial markets on a daily basis, mm-hmm. you know, and we worship the dollar. Again, Trent yeah. Reznor, got money, I'll do anything for you. Um,
0: when, when, when I start talking to my, my students too about you know, asking them why why is there so much violence in in American media? Why is there so much violent in, violence in films? And you know, really trying to crack that nut and getting them to understand that violence itself is sort of an economic mandate because it is you don't need to translate violence. Violence is primal, and so if you're looking at tertiary international markets, it's a simple export. right? You have violent films that have good and evil. It's not like some weird, like romance where there's cultural norms that are a little different. And you're like, what? I don't, we don't court like that here in the United States. What are these Italians doing? It doesn't resonate for me. But when you're talking superhero films and you're talking good and evil, that is exportable and it's cheap. And so, you know, it's not necessarily cheap to make, but the idea that you have infinite markets, even thinking in those terms can change how you start thinking about what Media are for, or you know that there was a this research that came out of the Annenberg Public Policy Center about how gun violence is actually more prevalent in PG thirteen films than it is in rated R films, oh. and why would that be? And the answer is an economic answer, because um, in in our culture there we we say that sex you can't have sex in PG thirteen films, but certain levels of violence you can have in PG thirteen films. And what happens is. The studios really want the PG-13 rating. They don't want an R rating because they want to get that audience. Who goes to see movies? It's like 14 to 17-year-olds. If you have an R rating, you're out gazillions of dollars. So over time, that pressure has moved the envelope and moved the envelope. and So so now you're in this place where PG-13 films are the film's of gun violence. Well, and I mean, we also this, celebrate yeah. war. I
1: mean, since, you know, the 40s, the since World War II, I think we've had 16 peaceable years in 244 years. Um, There's a, a great Jimmy Carter quote about that. I mean, the fact that we celebrate the, the being the world's police, you know, that we have yeah. the largest military in the world and we spend trillions of dollars on the military. Now, the irony with China is that China, you know in the last 50 years has spent millions of dollars billions of dollars on concrete and in infrastructure and building this manufacturing engine which feeds yeah. the united states i mean i yeah. think that that movie did you see that movie um dana when your kids are younger that wally you know we're all on like, oh my god that cruising. movie
0: flipped me out that movie completely flipped me out and I mean, all the like people that ha- are, are so busy consuming like content that they have no bones left so they can't walk yeah. So they're all yeah. Like I mean, Oh my
1: god. And so like everything in in the United States, I mean, we celebrate monetizing stuff. It's not it, you know, right. there's not a, a a really good balance with, you know, social services and what the government provides and, you know, what capitalism allows. It's it's all like, you know, it's it really is socio-economic darwinism. The the weak thrive, the Yeah. Or the weak die off the strong thrive. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: Well, I, I think that, and this is where I am an optimist. So especially in interactions with my students and, you know, we, we have been talking about our kids who have these value systems that I do think are different from what we were raised with as gen Xers, um, where they think about consumption and they think about the consumption of culture and the consumption of goods, in terms of a little bit in terms of social justice. And some will say that, uh, you don't want that. You know, you don't want the power of the dollar to be totally tied to political views. But I think that you could say you want, you want the power of your dollar to be tied to your value system to make sure that your values are reflected in the goods and services that you purchase. And it does feel that for those Gen Z folks coming up, it's all part of the same Puzzle. They see the link They see the link between the power of the dollar and the world that they want to see.
1: Yeah. Well, going back to media, too, I think, you know, that's why they are consuming political satire as news, because that threshold of monetizing, you know, the news. I mean, everything is really kind of marketing. Everything has bias and an agenda underlying it. And you know, if you go to a, a comedian if you if you listen to Dave Chappelle and he's pointing out like the hypocrisies and ironies in our world so much so that he freaks out and has to go to Africa. Cause he's thinking, am I continuing the circuit, the cycle of, of showcasing this, am I making it worse? You know, like when people have moral conundrum, like those are the people I, I, I tend to listen to right. because it's like, well, you, you obviously care. Um, yeah. I, I think the problem is now it's like we don't have a lobby for the, you know, the working class or the working poor anymore because their lobby is all paid for by large enterprise, you know, companies that that can, you know, it's like you look at Mitch McConnell and I'm not I'm not trying to get political here. Um, but, you know, he's he's helping the erosion of the United States Postal Service, as we said in the beginning, well, he gets funding from UPS and from FedEx. I mean, isn't that like a conflict of interest? Conflict and when- of
0: interest, I know. I-, I think about this in the context of what I, as a social scientist, what I have to report in terms of my conflict of interest in order to be allowed to do research and publish, I have to report, I even have to report that I do comedy sports. <laughs> Right, because comedy my, the fact that I'm a co-owner of comedy sports and I do comedy sports, maybe that could be a conflict of interest. Absolutely. Like maybe yeah. maybe the maybe I'm gonna publish some studies about how um, improv comedy uh, makes you more beautiful, right? <laughs> and maybe I have a vested interest in making people believe that. I
1: mean, look at us, Tana. We met doing improv and we're hello gorgeous people. I mean,
0: right uh, here, poster <laughs> child. But, you know, so the fact that, like, I have to disclose that because the the rules of higher ed say that you have to disclose that. But somehow conflict of interest is no longer a problem in the political world where its implications are the biggest.
1: Well, it's so funny. Conflict of interest seems like a very liberal idea in itself, too. It's like the fact that you're disclosing that. Um uh, to, to the comedy point, though, is it yeah. is it hard to simultaneously be both a media theorist um, examining comedy as well mm-hmm. as an improv comedian with, you know, Philadelphia comedy sports going up and and, <laughs> and enacting it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not because I completely bifurcate my life. So when I'm doing improv, I am not thinking of myself as a political person at all. I am okay. just Playing, I think of it as one of my, um, one of my fellow comedy sports members talked about it as recess. And it is the the older you get and the more responsibilities you have, the more improv becomes recess. And you're like, Oh, thank God we get to play make believe. Um, but when people say like, Oh, do you, so you must do political satire. And I'm like, no, that's hard. I can't make political satire. I can't create that. I study that. I don't do that. I do. I make shit up. Like but, I mean, your scenes. lexicon of
1: referential, like, academic studies and things, yeah. I mean, it must be great, like, if you could just fire that off on stage.
0: I do. I do. Usually, when I'm doing, when I'm playing characters and stuff, it is very fun. That is very fun. Um, but, but, yeah, for the most part, I just separate it. What gets really weird, though, is I sometimes will have students who will come to a comedy sports show. And ah. then I, my whole brain short circuits because I'm like, can I? <laughs> I have to pretend they're not there.
1: Right. Like, you you know. know that I'm a stripper. No. <laughs> no. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Um, It gets really weird.
1: Well, uh, like who's doing it right these days? Who, who is your favorite political satirist?
0: That's really good. Uh, who's doing it right is who is, that's so tricky. Okay. So my criteria first is who is doing political satire that, um, is critical is hilarious is critical makes an impact and has demonstrably moved the needle on getting things on the agenda, clarifying concepts and getting people informed and engaged. John Oliver. Yes. Uh, But what he's doing is so different. And I mean, that's why he went to HBO, right, is so that he could do that and he could and he also gets in under the hood and criticizes some of these aspects of the economics of media that we talk about. And he can do that because he's at HBO um, yeah. So John Oliver, John Oliver. Yeah. I mean, there are others too, but yeah,
1: and he doesn't mind. He doesn't mind shaking up to the kind of the liberal establishment entertainment. Not I mean, at all. He went after Dustin Hoffman a few years ago. And I was like, yeah. okay, like, like he's yeah. calling it as he sees it. Um,
0: yeah. And he will say, if you walk into a room full of politicians and celebrities and media people, and you are not uncomfortable and you feel like I shouldn't be here, then you are not doing satire correctly. Like you should not want to like rub elbows with these people because your job is to expose all of their bullshit. Um, and, and I, I think that because of the way that the media system works, I think it's very hard for a satirist to have that philosophy and stand by that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're, you're constantly under attack I mean everything's political these days, including wearing a mask into a Walmart um, why does why does progressive politics engender such contempt from conservatives when they claim to want to better the environment of politics or you know the, the United States in general? I mean it's like uh, even when progressive um, opinions are the status quo like women's suffrage or desegregation or, you know, gay rights kind of. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Like, even when something moves from progressive to, okay, now it's an established mandate or a law, um, it's still such a big issue.
0: in, in, In that context, I think it's even more, um, offensive. If you're an individual who engages with the world such that You perceive that there's a hierarchy to things that is natural, that some people are born some ways and some people are born other ways. And you're born that way and you stay that way, for example. Or um, there are social institutions that have existed for millennia that are there for a reason. And uh, institutions that have operated this way for a reason and certain people who are and are not allowed to participate And that is that way for a reason. (laughs) Ding. (laughs) Right. So, so these folks now, if you think about the Obama administration where this is what's so bonkers, when I talk about this, folks are like, well, Obama wasn't that liberal. And I'm like, okay, just stand down with that baloney. Okay. If you are a conservative eight years of the Obama administration, where you come out the other end and you're like affordable care act, gays can marry gays, can be in the military, you know, transgender rights, da, 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 fluidity everywhere. All of a sudden you're like, what is happening? Right? You know, that, whole-
1: you know that he's going somewhere when they like they they nick him for wearing a, a beige suit and they look right. for his Hawaiian birth certificate. You're like, Yes. Okay. All right.
0: You're like, here we are, right? So the the and in order to engage with those ideas themselves, they would have to acknowledge I do not want women to play an equal place in the workplace as men or make the same sense on the dollar. I do not think that black lives matter as much as white lives. I do not think you have to acknowledge all those things. So instead, it is look at the beige suit and he's not even American. Right. And that's that, you know, we can talk about ad hominem attacks, too. Right. When, when, When you can't engage with the content of the argument, you can just go for these other things. But to get back to your main question, like, why does it make such anger? And by the way, I'm not talking necessarily about like all Republicans are all conservatives. What we're talking really about here are social and cultural conservatives that are actually quite right in their inclinations, where they see difference as threat. They see unfamiliarity as threat. They see racial diversity as threat. And it all comes from that same place. So for those individuals, All of these progressive values, right, feminism, environmentalism, racial diversity, da-da-da, that are all framed as positive and actually have been framed as positive in mainstream media through the 90s into the 2000s, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. All these folks who are far right are like, you have been feeding us this for decades, and we are over it, and now we feel like push has come to shove, and they now can go— And they have guns, and they can go into social media environments that are now super homogenous, like, hello, 8chan, don't go there. Don't, don't go there. And you can find people like you. So it is a minority, but you can find folks like you, and people can then be cultivated in those views to be pulled even farther in that direction. So,
1: yeah. Yeah, it's exhausting, and it's funny. It's like, you know, I I feel like that we should be more outraged right it's but liberals can't do you know political talk radio uh, i don't know if it's because we, you know we don't yell enough or what have you i mean i, I don't why can't liberals be angry yeah. i mean john oliver is a great example i mean he mm-hmm. fumes this little english guy's Got a glass table now wherever he's broadcasting. I was wondering if he's going to break the table. From-
0: well, but, but you know what? He is outraged, but he always, like, breaks it with levity. And he's sort of incredulous when he talks about things. And you can tell that he's mad, but he always sort of makes jokes. I, I do think that the, the satirists of the left in the past three years have become more angry and more outraged. And so Samantha B. I think... Yeah. Uh, it, it, sort of teetering on the edge of becoming sort of an outrage host herself, and some from from the left would say, "Well, that's good. We need to be angry, and we need to deliver it with this morally serious tone." Um, I don't know. My sense is that because liberals do not like being told what to do or what to think, um,
1: it wouldn't work. I, uh, l- if they wouldn't yeah, let me say that
0: more. Cl- let me say that more clearly, though, because it's mm-hmm. not just because a lot of conservatives don't like being told what to do either. It's more like. Liberals like feeling like they come up with their own ideas. They don't want to feel like they're watching something that's propaganda. Mm -hmm. And if it's too emotionally heavy handed, then they'll immediately reflexively be like, oh, I don't I don't go for this stuff. So, you know, I have friends who will say, yeah, the content of what Rachel Maddow says, I uh, agree with. But I just can't take her constant. Like, I get it. Okay. I I get it. You know, but
1: I, I think you're hitting on a very important point and it kind of goes back to the Vox article you wrote a few months ago it is the bridge and the optimism I have is empathy, right? But how can we connect? How can we intimate that empathy from a point of a, a place of authenticity? Now, you know, we did it in, in the the late thirties and forties with world war II, we did it, you know, in, early aughts with with 9-11 like there's a there's a the inflection point of a physical tragedy that befalls the united states and we as a as a nation state come together and there is a there's a a popular cultural consciousness that Mm -hmm. we can collect and we can go forth and i was thinking i mean what if there was this you know, pandemic that hit the United States would would that hypothetically
0: help? would that help? <laughs> Do you know? You know help? what's what's really funny? I was um actually someone who you know who we went to college with, um, Joe Pace, who was our yeah, student body president at some Joe. point. So Joe and I have been in touch for years, and he's still really politically active. And we started talking about uh writing a, a science fiction novel together about some of these divisions and how the reality is that both of these ways of approaching the world are necessary to solve big problems. So you have to have liberals and conservatives to really solve problems. And so when we talked about like, okay, so what would be the big big thing that would like hit the United States? We talked about various things like an alien invasion or like a pandemic, but here's the deal. We're here and it's not working. And it's not working because, and again, media determinist, I'm guilty. the media infrastructure that we're in and the political environment that we're in and the institutions that we have have been set up in such a way to make it not work. And we have been, we have basically been told that our political identities are super important and they they symbolize things for us. They're cultural, social, political identities. And so we wear them as sort of capes and masks. I don't know which metaphor you want, a cape or a mask. both. You're a full superhero with the cape and the mask. And those identities then shape what you think you should watch, who you think you should talk to, who you think you should be friends with. And then you end up in these distinct information environments where either you're basically told that bad people don't wear masks or you're told that the bad people don't let you not wear a mask. And that's where we are. That's
1: yeah, it. it's like a, a socio-cultural hedge fund. I mean, either way, you win or you lose, depending on how you bet. You know? Um,
0: Yeah.
1: I Manic. So okay, to to end this very fun, what an uplifting interview. Um, What What <laughs> are you hopeful about then? You go <laughs> going back to that, like. What am I hopeful what, about? What yeah, am
0: I hopeful about? Um, yeah. I, I'm hopeful because uh, a couple things. I'm hopeful because. I think that there is a giant political middle that feels just so frustrated by all of this crap we're talking about because the the vast majority of Americans do not, this whole thing is not appealing to them at all. They would rather not be political at all. Um, there are a lot of real common sense people who just would like For us to be able to figure things out and speak to each other um, in ways that are not necessarily completely peaceful, but, you know, not saying that the other side wants us dead, for example. So that brings me some optimism. I think that where we see the most problems actually are in the people who are not digital natives, who take social media at face value and they think that everything in their Facebook news feed is like shared by a friend, a trusted friend. So old people are problematic, old people are a problem.
1: I'm a robot from China, I am your friend.
0: (laughs) I am your friend, I know. By the way, mom, I'm sorry to be outing you like this. But yeah, these folks are a problem. Um, But digital natives, as they come up and they understand media economics and they understand the logic and they understand curated algorithms and all this stuff, There is empowerment that happens through that. And it's, I I feel like they are not going to be as easily swayed through some of these processes. That's my hope.
1: Yeah. uh, And drink.
0: Oh yes. Yes.
1: Mm. What is that? That was awesome. I mean, I, I, I I agree. I I think, uh, you know, the digital natives, I think are, you know, again, we, we talked about it before this, this interview, but you know, our young people, you know, you know, your daughter, my daughter, your son, my son, you know, the, these kids have more of a context and, and and more of an understanding of what is, what is, what is right, what we need to do to kind of right the wrongs. They're Mm -hmm. looking at you know, their grandparents, the baby boomers, they're looking at their parents, the Gen Xers, and they're seeing this really just constant disruption all around them. Um, And it's, it doesn't work. Um, And it's, it's funny just to think of, of um, the future is really in their hands. And I'm, I'm truly hoping uh, that they do a better job than we did.
0: I do too. I think they will. I think they can't do a worse job. I think Gen Xers Um, it's just so funny. I I had, I had a student who was telling me that, um, she hates the whole idea of like cancel culture and all of her peers who like are so reactionary and everything's about social justice and and she's like, and I, I agree with them on the issues and their positions on the issues, but I just feel like, does everything have to be about what you stand for and whatever? And I'm like, well, the opposite is like my generation where Gen X, we didn't give a shit about anything. It was, like, complete apathy, right? It was very self-focused, and there, I I was a political science major, and I didn't know what was going on politically in the 90s. No. Like, what was going on in Kosovo or whatever. I, It wasn't until grad school that I was like, oh, my God, all this stuff happened, yep. and I should have probably known about that. And, like, yeah. I, I'm like, I don't think that's better. I think, you know.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of cigarettes and punk rock and moping, and yeah. and I think looking at you know the baby boomers and saying I don't want to you know spend you know twenty five years at Merrill Lynch. I don't want to have mm-hmm, this. Mm-hmm, I want mm-hmm. I want to I want to have meaning, and 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 yet at the same time we we kind of then went intended to go. Okay, we're going to go to four year university. We're going to go yeah. get uh, you know a master's degree. We're going to get a PhD. We're going to go in a Industry, we'll go to Accenture, Deloitte, or Capgemini. You know, we'll do these things. And um, and again, I I think now it's funny to see millennials because you know they're starting companies from from scratch without experience or needing to have a you know a bona fide pedigree of you know well, yeah. what who did you did you go to Kellogg? You were at the Wharton School, and they're like, no, I just had a great idea. and I'm going to do yeah, it.
0: Just did it. Yeah.
1: And I think I I think if you can get past fear, because going back to what you said, I mean, it's like, you know, it, it's, it's irony and outrage. It's, it's kind of hope and fear. You know, it's like pointing out, um, <laughs> pointing out what is, is wrong to make it right. Not necessarily to put it down.
0: Exactly. You know? Yeah. You know yeah. What, in thinking about the, the sort of, I don't know, the divide between Gen X and Gen Z, I, um, you know, I was trying to educate my son in all these like great films, you know, cause you have to, so we did the, like the Godfather series and all this, which he loved by the way. Um, but of course I was like, well, my favorite movie growing up was the breakfast club Oh yeah. and we watched it and he, he was like, I hate all of them. They're all self-absorbed. They're not, I don't understand the point of it. I don't understand. And I was like, no, no, it's like the jock and the nerd and the this and that. He was like, no, nah, doesn't do anything for me. And I don't know if that was just him, but it, I I felt like it was, that captured the atmosphere of the eighties. Yeah. And he was just like.
1: The archetypes, you know. It's yeah, and- like, that
0: does not speak to me at all. He felt that they were so self-absorbed. He just couldn't give a shit less. I was like, well, th- you're right. They are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So funny.
1: Well, Dana, it was so wonderful to talk with you on that note. I think I'm going to go and watch the breakfast club and just mope, smoke a cigarette and maybe give some of my kids. They'll be like, what are you doing? It's dis- dis- disgusting. That's um,
0: exactly right. And you're like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> no, we used to smoke all the time. And they'd say, what, did you not know that it killed you? No, we did, but they didn't care. <laughs> Wait, so they did, not, they did know it caused cancer? Yes, and you still yeah. did it. Yeah, but it was cool.
1: It was very cool. We looked very cool. Punk, punk, I looked very forever. cool. I- well, if somebody <laughs> wants to uh, to read more about irony and outrage, how did they get your book?
0: Oh, well, it is on Amazon. Irony and outrage. It's also from Oxford University Press. If you don't want to, you know, give money to Jeff Bezos, that's cool. Oxford University Press sells it, um, and I have a website. Danagal.com. That's my first name because nobody else has it. And it's also my Twitter handle. Danagal. D-A-N-N-A-G-A-L.
1: Danagal.com. Yeah. Danagal.com. I said Danagal.com.
0: Maybe I do got com.
1: (laughs) You do, Dana. Thank you so much for joining After 12 and for all you out there. Click subscribe and learn more and watch John Elliott. John Elliott? John Oliver. John Oliver. (gasps) Oliver. (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks.